Good evening and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence. If you're visiting tonight, we want you to know that we appreciate so much you coming to be with us. We encourage you to come back, be with us at every opportunity that you have. This is the last meeting that we will have for 2012. And so it's been a good year. Hopefully 2013 will be an even greater year. I do want to mention that typically the young folks handle the services the last Sunday of the year. And I know that they, they do this on a regular basis. But many of our young people are in Hamilton, Alabama this weekend. And so Jared said that what they're going to do is just bump it up and they will handle the services the end of January. And so I would encourage you to mark your calendars and to be here. I know that the young folks will do a great job. They always do. And uh, I asked Cameron a minute ago if he's going to be speaking next month, and he said he wasn't sure. But I promise you we will have some great speakers and great song leaders and others who will participate. I do also want to mention that as we begin 2013, we want to do everything within our power to make this a great year. And we have to ramp up our efforts and do all that we can to expand the borders of the kingdom. We have a lot of our own people away for the holiday period and hopefully they'll be back safely. And if we can ever get our own people here with the visitors that we have, we're gonna be crowding 300. And we wanna do everything that we can to make that happen in 2013. Tonight I want us to look at the book of Nehemiah and we're going to read some excerpts from the book of Nehemiah. And as we look at some of the chapters in Nehemiah, I want to call attention to the theme, the Lord's work is a good work. And really it's not just a good work, it is a great work. And it's not just a great work, it is the greatest work. And so as we think about the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, of course, was cupbearer to the king of Persia. He was the king's taster. And he did so to prevent the king from being poisoned. Nehemiah wanted to lead the rebuilding efforts of the walls in the city of Jerusalem and was granted that wish or petition. And so as we look at the book of Nehemiah, and particularly as it relates to the rebuilding of the wall, I think that there are, there are some comparisons there to the work that we are involved in today, the work of the church. And I guess I would begin by saying there are a lot of good works all over the world. There are a lot of works that are focused on helping people. A great example would be in the city of Memphis, St. Jude Hospital. I'm not sure how many young people St. Jude Hospital has ministered to or helped through the years, but I suspect that there are any number of people that are extremely grateful for the efforts of that hospital. Many years ago, a lady told me that St. Jude Hospital had spent over a million dollars caring for her child. And she said, they didn't charge me a dime. That's a great work. But when we talk about the many good works that are taking place around the globe, I want to submit to you that the greatest work is the work of the church. And if you're a member of the church, 
and you belong to the body of Christ, you have the opportunity to serve in what I believe to be the greatest work known to man. That's the work of King Jesus. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we look at the book of Nehemiah, let me begin by calling attention to the task before the people. And of course, you begin in chapter 1 by noting the cry of anguish. Nehemiah and the people were in distress. And so first of all, we have the distress of the survivors and then the distress of a servant. And that servant, of course, is Nehemiah. And in verses 4 and following, he is identified as a servant. But look, if you would, in verses 2 and 3, we have mention made of the Jews that had escaped and had survived the captivity. Now, you well know that God's people had been carried away into Babylonian captivity. They spent 70 years in exile. Under the hand of Cyrus, king of Persia, God's people were allowed to return and begin rebuilding the temple. They began those efforts, and then for whatever reason, indifference, apathy, they ceased, and so two prophets were called upon by Almighty God to stir the people up, Haggai and Zechariah, and they did that. And they began calling upon the people to finish the temple in about 520 B.C. The temple was completed in 516 B.C. And so about 100 years later, Nehemiah is going to lead the way in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And so in verse 3, word gets to Nehemiah. And here's what's said. The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also, also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And then look at what Nehemiah, look at what Nehemiah does. Verse four, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. And Nehemiah prays to Almighty God. He acknowledges the shortcomings, failures, and iniquities of the children of Israel. He includes himself among that number. Now in chapter 2, you'll find that the king noticed the sad countenance of Nehemiah, his cupbearer. He asked, why, why the sad face? Why the long face? And Nehemiah told him, and so, in verse 4, the king said to him, What do you request? He said, So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And so here is, in essence, the backdrop to what's going to occur in the book of Nehemiah, particularly the first six chapters of Nehemiah. So you have the cry of anguish, and that cry of anguish included not just the survivors, but God's servant, Nehemiah. But then there is the call to action. Nehemiah makes his way to Jerusalem. In verses 12 through 16, Nehemiah evaluates the broken walls of Jerusalem. And so look with me, if you would, at verse 12. 
The text said, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. I went out by night through the valley gate to the, to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. So you have Nehemiah evaluating the destruction that had taken place, and no doubt it was a terrible sight. When Nehemiah surveyed the broken down walls of Jerusalem, I think what he was doing was formulating a plan. And we talk about planning our work and working our plan. And certainly that's necessary in the church today. In order for the work of the church to be executed, we have to set before ourselves plans. And once we get those plans crystallized, then it's, then it's necessary for us to take action, to work. Note now his exhortation to build the walls. Drop down and look at verses 17 and 18. First of all, there is the rallying cry to the troops. And what you have here, Nehemiah is trying to encourage. He's serving as a catalyst to get these people involved in rebuilding the walls that had been destroyed. He said, you see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste. Its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So you have Nehemiah here really trying to rally the troops. But then note if you would the rallying cry of the troops, the latter part of verse 18. They said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. It was a good work. It was a great work. Nehemiah was a catalyst. He was a motivator. What is it that we are, what, what is it we're trying to do as members of the body of Christ? We're trying to, to mobilize and execute the greatest work on earth. That is the work of the church. There are three primary works of the church. Evangelism, edification, benevolence. And really, evangelism is at the head. We can use evangelism, well, we can use the other works of the church to fulfill the Great Commission. And we'll have more to say about that in just a moment. But we have to be motivated, and then once motivated, we've got to get involved. We've got to do everything within our power to execute the plans that are set before us. Now, I want to call attention to the togetherness of the people. As we think about the togetherness of the people, what comes to my mind is there was a common accord, if you please, that existed among these people. First and foremost, they were united in their work. Look again at verse 18. They said, that is the people, let us rise up and build then they set their hands to do this good work. If the work of the church is going to be accomplished, we have to be of one accord, of one mind, and ultimately, we have to be willing to work together. We have to be willing to work in unison. When Paul wrote to the saints in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 2 at verse 2, he instructed them to be of one accord and one mind. 
In chapter four, at verse two, he would say, be of the same mind in the Lord. We have common interests, don't we? We are people of like precious faith, as Peter said in 2 Peter chapter one, verse one. As people of like faith, our common interest is the welfare of the church. We want to see the church grow spiritually and numerically. If spiritual growth occurs, then numerical growth will follow. Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We sow the seed of the kingdom. We do everything that we can to encourage, to edify, to strengthen, to build up the church of God. We have to all be on the same page. That makes it incumbent that we walk by, as Paul would say, the same rule. That is the word of God. God's word is our guide, is our rule for life. And so we're working together. The saints in the first century, they worked together. Read Acts chapter 2. When the church began in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day, some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel. That's what verse 41 tells us. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and prayers, verse 42. In verse 44, the Bible says that the believers were of one mind. In other words, they were together. In verse 46, they were of one accord. The idea is that there was unity. And in the advancement of the cause of Christ, there has to be unity. It was necessary then, it's necessary today. There's a second thing I want you to see, and that is not only were the people united in their work, but they were undeterred in their work. First, the attitude of the people. Turn over with me, if you would, to chapter 4. And look at verse 6. In verse 6, Nehemiah said, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together, up to half its height. Now note, for the people had a mind to work. The attitude of the people. If the church at Olive Branch is going to excel in 2013, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to entail each and every one of us having a mind to work begins with attitude. It's all about attitude. Are we willing to do the work of the church? Are we willing to find our niche and get involved? To be what God would have us to be? To do what God would have us to do? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there are a couple of passages that I think are very important in relationship to this point. In chapter 8, verse 5, Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, said in the long ago that they first gave themselves to the Lord. Do you know what's going to make the Olive Branch Church of Christ, do you know what's going to make this congregation successful in 2013? It's going to be each and every one of us giving ourselves to the Lord lock, stock, and barrel, everything we have. We talk about loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind, loving God preeminently, serving him. Well, it begins by giving ourselves to the Lord. That means everything I have belongs to the Lord. My time, my talents, my treasures, everything 
belongs to Almighty God. And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, or rather 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, that that which is required of a steward is that a man be found faithful. Everything I have belongs to God. I'm but a steward. What I want to do is make wise usage of the things that God has entrusted into my care. So first of all, these people gave themselves to the Lord. And then in verse 12, he said, if there is first a willing mind. The two go together. We give ourselves to the Lord, but there is a willing mind. Jesus said on one occasion, if any man wills to do his will, in order for me to be what God would have me to be, I've got to have the right kind of mind. In other words, I've got to have the right mindset. My attitude has got to be positive. I've got to say I'm in this thing until death. I'm willing to do whatever I can to advance the cause of Christ. The attitude of the people in the day of Nehemiah. Again, the Bible says the people had a mind to work. Do you have a mind to work? Have you been working? What about 2012? What did you do in 2012? What are you going to do in 2013? We talk about planning our work, working our plan. Do you have plans for 2013? Do you know where you want to be? Do you know what you want to do? Do you know where you want to be involved in the church here? I hope you do. I hope you'll find that niche and get involved. So the attitude of the people. But then note, if you would, also the adversaries of the people. Whenever good work is going on, we have to understand that the devil's not going to leave us alone. In the days of Nehemiah, here is Nehemiah. He is serving as a catalyst to get the people involved in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And what happened? Well, there were thorns in their side. There were people that sought to undermine, to disrupt the good work that they had undertaken. For example, look at chapter 4, verse 1. But so it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. He spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive stones from the heaps of rubbish? Stones that are burned? So, what do you have? Adversaries at work. Now, a couple of things here very quickly. First of all, in order for them to accomplish the task that was before them, they had to be on guard, didn't they? They had to watch out for the enemy. And that's exactly what they did. In verses 7 and following, we have an account of them watching out for the enemy. In verse 7, the latter part, the gaps in the walls were beginning to be closed. And the Bible says they became very angry. The enemies, they didn't like what was going on. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Do you remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5? Be sober, 
Be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walketh, walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said, Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We have to be watchful, don't we? When Paul called for the elders of the church from Ephesus to come and meet with him, Paul, of course, was in Miletus, he talked to them in a, in a very straightforward way about how from among, them all, among their own selves, men would arise speaking perverse things in order to draw away disciples after them. What was Paul telling them? You need to be on guard. You need to watch out. If the church is going to go forward, we have, we have to maintain a vigilant spirit, don't we? We have to be on guard. We have to be on watch. And one of the reasons is because there are always foes without and sadly sometimes foes within. The devil is never happy when God's work is going forward in a positive way. You see, the devil wants to undermine what we're doing. The devil wants to unravel all of the good that we're doing for the cause of Christ. Read the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the devil is leading an all-out assault on the people of God. He is using the Roman Empire. Domitian, of course, was on the throne. And the devil was doing everything within his might to literally crush out Christianity. But God was on their side. And the revelation says to people of all ages, when it's all said and done, God's people will win. We will be victorious. There may be problems. There may be thorns in our sides. There may be those that seek to circumvent and derail our good efforts and good works but we will be victorious. So they watched out for the enemy, but then secondly, they had weapons that they used to fight the enemy. In other words, they had weapons, and if necessary, those weapons would be employed so that they could finish the task at hand. Let me just give you a glimpse into that. Down in verse 13, Nehemiah said, Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Look at verse, well, look at verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons and daughters, your wives, your houses. And it happened. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their counsel to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall and everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side 
as he built. So here you have the people, they are on watch and they are girded with weapons. They are ready, if necessary, to fight. What does that say to us? We're involved in a fight, aren't we? Paul said, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on life eternal. We are involved in Christian warfare. Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The warfare that we're talking about is not carnal, but rather spiritual. It's not a physical warfare. It is a spiritual warfare. And so, in our fight for what is right, three things we need to remember. Number one, we have the sword of the Lord. That sword is the word of God. In Ephesians 6, 17, Paul said that we are to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. God's word is what is to be used in the advancement of his cause, isn't it? In order for people to come to belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be convicted of sin and come to understand what they need to do to become children of God, what do they need? They need to hear the gospel, don't they? Paul said faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The sword of the Spirit is both offensive and defensive. Offensively, we take it out into the world and sow the, key, sow the seed of the kingdom. Defensively, we contend earnestly for the faith. So we use the sword of the Lord. Secondly, we have the support of the Lord. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? I'm going to tell you what. Sanballat and his cohorts, they did everything they could to bring this work to naught. They even tried compromise. It didn't work. God was on their side. God is on our side. When God is on your side, do you know what that means? That means you have the majority. Now we look around in our world today and we think about how small in number we are in comparison to those in the world. And I would freely grant that. But let me tell you what. We are not left defenseless. We have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We have the support of God. When David wrote in Psalm 56, here's what he said in the long ago. He said, this I know God is for me. God's for us. To know that when we, when we engage in the work of the kingdom, the Lord is with us. God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When Joshua stepped in to fill the shoes of Moses, what did God say? I'll be with you. I'll never leave you. I won't forsake you. To know that people come and people go, God is by his people. He is standing by his people. And then a third thing. Well, let me just make this point. Look at verse 20. We talk about the support of God. The latter part of verse 20. Nehemiah said, our God will fight for us. What does that, what does that say? It says that God is going to support us. Look, God has given us the greatest work in the world. He wants us to be involved. He wants us to execute his will, to advance his cause. Now, do you think he's going to sit back and let us flounder in that? 
Do you not think he's going to stand by us and support us and be with us? Absolutely. Do you think God wants us to succeed or fail? Do you think he wants the church in this community to grow, to flourish, to be everything it could be? Or do you think he wants to see us board the building up? Tell you what he wants. He wants to see this place booming. He wants to see this congregation overrunning with people. Why? Because people represent souls. And God is in the soul-saving business. God is interested in people. And we're, in, we're interested in getting people to help us advance the cause of Christ. We need people that want to work, that want to be involved, that want to do everything they can to be a shining light for Jesus in this community. The bus hasn't just started, it's rolling. It's going forward. What we need are people to jump on board and move. Go with us. A third thing. We have in our fight for what is right, we have the strength of the Lord. Now, God was with Nehemiah and the children of Israel as they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And I believe that God strengthened them and I believe that God will strengthen us. Listen to what Paul said. And Paul was writing from a Roman prison. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Think about Paul. Here he is in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard, 24 hours a day, got a different guard every four to six hours. And Paul is writing to these people and he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The source of Paul's strength or power, where was it? It was in the Lord. Will God not strengthen us in our work? Do we get tired? Do we get weary? Do we get discouraged? Do we become dismayed from time to time? Yes. Why? Because we're human beings. But what we've got to do is see the big picture. And what we've got to do is realize that we have the strength and muster the fortitude to fight on, to keep on keeping on. Now, third thing, and that is the triumph of the people. Turn over to chapter 6. In chapter 6, we have the crowning accomplishment. Look at verses 15 and 16. In summation, they finished the work. Listen to what it said. So the wall was finished. Do you know how many days it took them to finish the wall? 52 days. That's getting with the program. Verse 16, it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Remember what Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? God was on their side. In order to finish the work, in order to finish the walls, three things had to happen. In order for us to be successful in 2013, in order for us to be what we need to be, to fulfill the work, there are three things that we have to have. Number one, cooperation. We've got to work together. 
We've got to be on the same page. Go back again and look with me very quickly at chapter 2. Underline it if you need to. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Let us, plural, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. If the work of the church is going to be accomplished in 2013, we've got to work together hand in glove, don't we? We can't have people running one way and other people running another way and another party running this way and that way. I understand we have different responsibilities and different works. But under the broad spectrum of things, we've got to work together. We have to cooperate with one another. We've got to follow the lead of the eldership. And let me very quickly say we ought to pray for the elders and their wives every day. We ought to pray for them. We ought to pray for our elders, for our deacons. We ought to pray for one another. Paul, When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, Paul was an inspired apostle. We talk about Paul being a spiritual giant, he was. Can you imagine Paul saying to you, pray for me? When he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said, brethren, pray for us. We ought to pray for one another. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. The work that, that he was heading up, the work that he was serving as a catalyst for, this work required a lot of prayer, a lot of patience, and perseverance. So, cooperation. Again, Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul said, be of the same mind in the Lord. Everything we do, we do it together. Look, we're in this thing together. There are no big eyes and little U's. We're all here together. We're all working together. We're trying to do the work and build something to the glory of God. Number two, a second very key component in the crowning accomplishment of their building efforts, it took commitment. Let me tell you what. If the church here is going to be everything it can be in 2013, it's going to take every member being committed to Almighty God. No exclusions. We need everybody here. We need everybody here on the same page. Look at chapter 4 again, verse 6. For the people had a mind to work. Commitment. I see the lesson this morning must have fallen on some deaf ears. Some folks not back. What does that say about commitment or lack of commitment? Look, this is the greatest work in the world. We don't have time to be apathetic and indifferent We've got to get on board the train and move forward. And those who are not committed need to be committed. And those who are not committed, and we know who they are, we know, we know who they are. We see them every Sunday morning. What we need to do is light a fire under them. The psalmist in the long ago said, revive us again 
There are some folks need, that need to be revived. So commitment. Listen to Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That means before anything else. You seek him first. You put him first. If Jesus isn't first in your life, you're in trouble. Number three, it took courage. Look, in the face of opposition, when adversaries are threatening, you've got to have some courage. If, if we're going to go forward in 2013 and be everything that we can be, we've got to muster some courage. Are we going to take pot shots from people sometimes? Yes. Are, are people going to... Are people going to say things about us sometimes because of the message that, that we teach and preach and because of our stand for truth and righteousness and what's biblical? Yes. Let me tell you what. We will not back down. We will not recant. Truth is truth whether people like it or not. Now, we don't, we don't need to preach it unkindly. We must preach the truth in love. But we're going to preach and teach and stand for the truth come what may. Let me tell you what, that takes courage. We've got to say, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible requires. You can either accept it or reject it. But it is the message of the living God. Look again at the courage of the people. In verse 7 of chapter 4, the adversaries became very angry. They conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem to create confusion. Look at verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God because of them. We set a watch against them day and night. That's courage. They fought onward. That's what we've got to do. We just keep on keeping on. We don't give up. We don't give in. We don't give out. We just stay the course. We're in this thing until the very end. So I got a question for you. Are you involved in the greatest work known to man? The Lord's work is not just a good work. It's not just a great work. It is the greatest work. Are you involved in the greatest work known to man? The work of the church? If you haven't been what you ought to be in 2012, could I encourage you to make the decision right now? 2013 is going to be different. Could I encourage you? Could I encourage you to commit that you're going to make 2013 everything it ought to be for the cause of Christ? If that's going to happen, it's not going to happen because I want it to happen or because the elders want it to happen or because your friends and family want it to happen. It's going to happen because you want it to happen. Are you willing to commit to making 2013 the greatest of years? If you're here tonight and you're not a member of the body of Christ, I want to encourage you to come to Christ. There is no other way to be saved outside of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. Jesus said, except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. If you die in your sins, Jesus said, where I am, there you can't come. So would you be willing to put your faith in him, repent 
Confess his name before others. Be immersed in a watery grave of baptism. Rise to walk in newness of life. To know the blessings of being forgiven. Just like they did on Pentecost Day in Acts 2 verse 38. Maybe you're here tonight and your life is not what it ought to be. Maybe you, maybe you haven't been what you ought to be. Why not make the commitment tonight? Resolve tonight. You're going to be faithful. You're going to be loving. You're going to be industrious. You're going to be a light for God in a darkened world. It might be that you need the prayers of the church. We would be happy to pray with you and for you. You see, we love you. And we want you to go to heaven. John said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you come as we stand and sing?